Alright, good morning um, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Weekly Radio with Jacob and Zane. Hello, ni hao, guten morgen. <laughs> Alright, um, I guess I actually want to start off with the acknowledgement um, that Green Left Radio is being broadcast to you from FreeCR Studios on Smith Street in Collingwood, um, which is built on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri Wand- people of the Kulin Nation. Yeah. Um, no, I like to acknowledge that, you know, sol- sovereignty was never ceded and was and as with um, the many other First Nations across the continent, this ha- always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, we have a bit of a pretty... Sorry, just knocked something on the floor just then. No problem, sorry. Um, there's a, we have a pretty packed program um, this morning. Um, we have at least three interviews. Um, our first interview is going to be um, with Anthony Kelly. Um, we'll be talking about sort of like... Um, there's been uh, some recent news stories about... Um, uh, I'll just read it actually out this news story now, actually, just for a bit of background. Um um, up to 40 teenage prisoners from um, Victoria's Youth Justice Centre at, at Parkville will be sent to a surrogated wing of the maximum security bar and adult pr- um, prison after it was gazetted as a youth remand centre and a youth justice custodial centre on November the 17th. Um, so basically they're going to be sending um, youth to um, adult prisons um, with Victoria Premier Daniel Andrews saying that the adult prison was the most appropriate facility for those responsible for allegedly writing at the Parkville Justice Centre the previous weekend um, and he said that prisoners all over 16 will be would be moved to Bowen Prison for a number of months while the Parkville Centre is fortified. So that um, our first interview will kind of be dealing with those kind of issues, especially around this supposed... We'll also be talking about the supposed crime wave um, of youth crime, which is Ooh. which is all coming from the Herald Sun. And, you know, we're going to sort of debunk kind of like the racist racism behind those kind mm. of headlines in that interview. Um, I guess in terms... Um, so, Zane, do you have any sort of um, immediate thoughts on sort of any headline news you'd like to share? Uh, well, just this uh, sugar tax, actually. That's been interesting to me because a couple of years ago I studied um, the sociology of food when I was at Newcastle Uni and we looked at the way that the human body is kind of programmed to crave uh, three things, sugar, salt and fat because in in hunter-gatherer times or where we're sort of evolved from, sugar, salt and fat would be available in trace amounts in the wild and so your body was like wow that's good stuff i'll get some of that while it's available uh now that we can mass produce and farm things we can basically put lots of sugar and salt and food uh, and fat into food and corporations do that because they know that the human body is programmed to want these things Mm. Uh, and then you have this interesting phenomenon where a hundred years ago, you might associate being rich with being overweight, but these days there's a new phenomenon where actually poor people are often overweight, and it's mm-hmm. because often the most calorie-rich food, um, well, because poor people have a, a, a you know a limited amount of disposable income, and they want the most calories, they want the most satisfying meal that they can get. Mm-hmm with the limited amount of money. And it's not like a sort of like a crude um, 
equation in your brain, how many calories can I get for this dollar? It's just more of a, um, you know, what's going to satisfy my hunger? What's, yeah. a, what's a good thing to get for two bucks, which is what yeah. I've got in my pocket right now? Well, yeah, if, um, now going into that, um, for listeners who might not know, um, the Greens Party, um, sort of under the leadership of Richard Di Natale, have proposed um, a sugar tax on basically sugary drinks and sugary food. And essentially what it's, um, the tax basically works by, um, it basically, doesn't it, Basically, they're taxing. It's sort of like the GST, except it's carbon tax. Or the carbon tax, except it's um, instead of being applied to good and, goods and services, um, there's going to be an extra levy on sugary foods. Um, so, make basically sugary foods and soft drinks under this tax would um, be in theory more expensive. Um, the main this is um, tax is sort of aimed to sort of. Um, in principle, it's supposed to divert people who you know consume. Well, it sends food. a signal to the market, Jacob. Yeah, the food market. Yeah, because we don't have individual people looking to get maximum calories for their buck. We yep. have a market. Yeah. So if we can send some signals to the market, that will rectify the issue. Yeah. Um, but I guess there's a lot of problems with this policy because basically. I feel it kind of miss, um, I have to strongly criticise the Greens for putting forward this policy because it doesn't actually address the kind of fundamental issues around, um, healthy food. In fact, the simple principle was why don't you think, why did they, why aren't they thinking about making healthy food more accessible mm. and, um, cheaper? And I guess another, um, issue is, I guess, when it comes to fast food, and that is for a lot of working class people, you know, working nine to five jobs, long hours, um, it's much more cheaper to go to McDonald's than to go to some nice, healthy takeout restaurant. Mm. Um, and that's really the reality of it. Unless, unless there, um, there's going to be a policy that actually addresses um, that problem, then this sugary tax just comes off as very sort of middle class kind of moralism. Yeah, yeah, for real. And when I was studying um, the sociology of food, it basically, that was the other side of the coin, was generally these days, wealthier people are the ones who eat more nutrition-dense rather than calorie-dense foods, and that's because it's a luxury you can afford when you've got more disposable income. You can pay more money for a fancy salad or whatever, whereas, yeah... It's that cheap bang for your buck, calories for your buck thing. Mm. That's why poorer people eat, uh, you know, somewhat unhealthy foods. Yeah. So. Hey, well, going on to another um, another side of the... Uh, oh, sorry, sorry, just like, before we do, the other thing I would say, Jonathan Stree, who's a Greens councillor from Gabba Ward in Brisbane... He, he put out a good thing on his Facebook page, and he said, look, I support the idea of, of getting people to eat less sugar. We're on the same page there, but this is a, kind of like a regressive... It's not, it's not a good way to achieve that outcome. And, but he's also saying uh, the Greens are meant to be a different party where there's more grassroots consultation amongst the membership when mm-hmm. they're coming up with policy, but this is... He didn't use the word top-down, but he's basically saying this is a top-down policy mm. that's come out of, um, yeah, the, the, the leadership of the top in Canberra, yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, that's a, that point. Uh, and of course, but of course, I think they have just actually recently heard that they maybe because of sort of pressure, maybe from the membership of the Greens, who maybe majority might not be happy with this policy. Um, don't know for sure um, that they might not even be adopting it. But of course, it's actually was actually. This, I first heard about this policy actually several months ago, and now it's sort of come back to the surface. So mm. um, some interesting sort of developments there. I um, guess now going to other side of Australian politics, um, many probably heard that Peter Dunton has made some interesting statements recently. Um, first, he started off by saying that, um, that it was a mistake from Malcolm... What was his last name? Fraser. Malcolm Fraser, yep. Um, who, for history's sake, um, that he um, was responsible for actually having quite a very humane refugee policy, especially towards Vietnamese refugees. Mm. I mean, it wasn't perfect, but Peter Dunton is going on to the record of saying he made a mistake. Of course, because Peter Dunton supports the mandatory detention, mm. boat turnbacks and, and, and Lebanese refugees. Especially, yes, Lebanese, um, he's made a completely, you know, sort of what a racist statement towards yeah. Lebanese Australians, basically saying that, um, that, oh, it was a mistake to let Lebanese Australians in because some yeah. of them had turned out to be criminals, which is completely irrelevant, um, because any, um, well, in and terms it's just of crime. Crap. I'm yet to be shown any statistics that says the Lebanese portion of the population is any, different to any other part of yep. the population. I think it's just complete rubbish. Yeah. And the context of that, of the war, the, the so-called war in Lebanon, mm. as, as I understand it, is uh, Israel trying to invade Lebanon and bombing the crap out of the mm. place like they do to Palestine every now and then. Uh, and so what he's really saying is, if Israel wants to absolutely bomb the heck out of Lebanon, that's fine, mm. and we shouldn't shelter people who are running away from the yeah. horror of that. It's just completely, in, um, completely abhorrent. And but at the, the good news is there's been a really great sort of collective response against Dutton's statements, um, a very good sort of backlash. And of course, one thing I'd like to make a good criticism of is basically Malcolm Turnbull. Um, Malcolm Turnbull hasn't actually said any of these statements, um, but he was actually being pressured by journalists to ask, you know, what do you make of Peter Dunton's statements? And he hasn't condemned or supported statements. He's basically said nothing at all hmm. in response, which I just think is, I would think is quite, yeah, just very... Hmm. Um, I don't know even how to describe it. And of course, it's by being it's, silent, you condone that like blatantly hardcore yeah. racist behaviour from yeah. a, from a, a minister, like a yeah. really senior person in the government. Yeah. And it's I think it's and Peter Dunton's statements are so abhorrent. Like he, these lames, he's he's known for saying quite abhorrent things, but this is almost going. Yeah. He keeps raising the bar further and further. Uh, and um, another. Uh, um, there's been actually been some petitions for around calling on Peter Dunton to resign in light of these these recent comments, uh, and even more kind of parliamentary shenanigans. Um, just quickly, yeah, Pauline Hanson has been on the record to saying um, that she is sick of quote unquote being called a racist in mm. Parliament, um, which yeah, a poor oppressed racist white person. What a what a terrible. It must be so difficult for Pauline Hanson. 
going around whipping up racism all the time and then having to deal with the fact that she's a racist and people yeah. call her out on it. Yeah, it's poor like, Pauline. It's like, like the I'm shedding a tear like right the political now. correctness uh political correctness has seriously gone on mad in this country because now we can't even call a racist a racist. Like yeah. it's it's there's just it's it's gone mad. We need to we need to this sort of lack of this political correctness. It's just all gone mad. <laughs> okay, um, so you are listening to um, Green Left Weekly Radio with Jacob and Zane. Um, on the line here, we have our first interview on the program. We have Anthony Killey, um, who is an executive officer from the Flemington Kensington Legal Service. Um, and he's going to be here today to talk about um, the youth, um, sort of supposed youth crime wave and, in the Herald Sun. And maybe we'll, um, which, and the, um, the overall racialization of it. Um, and of course, um, the so-called riot in the youth detention centre and the transfer of 40 kids to our adult jail will get an opportunity to maybe talk about that as well. So good morning, Kelly, Anthony. Good morning. Um, okay, so I, I guess um, maybe um, a good sort of question to ask is sort of like, you know, um, what can you say, what is sort of your comments about this sort of youth crime wave and, and of course, where your, where your um, legal service kind of fits in because you do a lot of work in sort of against sort of like, you know, racial discrimination and um, police um, racism? Yeah, that's right. We're, we're always concerned, of course, when there's a uh, moral panic in the media uh, in relation to this sort of stuff, in, because it uh, directly affects uh, policing and then people on the street. Um, and we've seen this uh, time and time again over over many years. Uh, back in 2005 and 2006, there was um, a, you know a toxic array of media coverage around um, uh, crime committed by African young people and African gangs and so forth around Dandenong, and that, that sort of culminated in um, the murder of a young Sudanese man called Leop Goni in Noble Park in 2007. And you might remember the then Immigration Minister, Kevin Andrews, um, saying that uh, he's going to put a halt on African immigration because of their issues with uh, integration. And that, of course, has now been... Um, uh, echoed again with, with uh, Dutton's comments, um, you know, around um, certain types of immigration being stopped, uh, and you know, due to due to crime or perceptions around crime. So this this uh, um, pattern is a is a template. It happens it happens periodically, and uh, it has a range of impacts, of course. But um, the the crime itself has. Um, you know, the actual um, crime behaviour concerning, although some of the crimes are, they represent simply a, a spike in certain crime types. Uh, it's the way the media portray these crimes, of course, and then society's reactions to them. And the, the media um, fit to a particular template. Uh, and then the, the moral panic that surrounds the media coverage uh, is used, is utilised politically in a whole range of different ways. Um, do you think um, that one of the kind of reasons for this, and um, you kind of notice this is like a consistent trend in the Herald Sun, um, is you know a, a, essentially a way for for the police to lobby for more police powers? That's one impact. Yes, um, you see that it's not just police lobbying; it's also um, political party posturing and saying that they will bring in and allow more police powers. So um, the, it's interesting in this uh, 
particular context around the um, coverage of what's called the apex game. Um, everyone's using this terminology in this in various ways. So the opposition, for instance, have been really um, hammering the current um, Andrews government and trying to instigate a, a, a tough-on-crime um, auction, essentially, uh, in the lead-up to next year's election. And they're, they're using the Apex Gang, this racialised um, crime fear, uh, in order to put lots of pressure on the Andrews government, and the Andrews government is, is, um, being, is susceptible to that. It's definitely responding uh, in various ways. Um, and, but the actual, the Victoria Police, to their credit, are actually trying to water down the, um, the racialised nature of the reporting. They're equally as shocked. They see that, um, the carjackings and house robberies, um, you know, there's a huge range of ethnicities involved in this, not one particular ethnicity involved. Um, and they're, they're also sort of trying to, um, talk back against various media commentators who are, are relating it to African or, or Ireland, the young people, and trying to racialise the um, the issue. Hmm. Um, That's yeah, peculiar. So it's, it's actually quite interesting. Um, it's a it's the police are getting more sophisticated in their media response than they were back in two thousand and five and six. Um, Zane, do you have a, a question? Oh yeah, just a comment, Anthony. It's almost like the Liberals here are trying to initiate a uh, sort of a Donald Trump-like campaign. So it's when Donald Trump says we're going to build a wall and get rid of all the Mexicans, um, the the Victorian opposition, and unfortunately the Andrews government as well, seem to want to the centrepiece of their sort of racist scaremongering and uh, distraction is, uh, oh, we're going to crack down on youth crime and the Apex gang. Mm, yeah, it's a it's a familiar template. There's nothing really new new to it, and um, Thatcher and Reagan um, pioneered it. Essentially, this this form of electioneering, law and order populism, or penal populism, as it's sometimes called, hmm. um, back in the 80s, and it's been followed by you know Australian and English and um, you know Canadian and American um, governments and candidates for quite some time now. But yeah, it, it is incredibly familiar. It's incredibly damaging because not only does it um, you know exacerbate uh, far right. Uh, you know, paranoid nationalism, mm. but, and it, and it um, you know destroys the ability of communities to to reset, to nearly arrive communities to resettle. It really undermines that social cohesion in a, in a very profound way. Um, but yeah, it leads to incredibly poor criminal justice policies, uh, ineffective and detrimental. So the more you know, the, the evidence is overwhelming that increased punishments, increased jail terms. And increased prison populations is not only ineffective; it's detrimental. Increases um, uh, recidivism and, and, and criminal rates overall. And that early intervention and um, support and um, a whole you know whole range of different uh, preventative measures are far more effective in multiple ways. And yet, it's uh, these sort of law and order population push, pushes up. Uh, prison rates, as we've seen here in Victoria since the last government, and um, uh, and undermines effective criminal justice policies. 
Yeah. Okay, I guess moving on to um, the next topic I wanted to we wanted to interview about. Um, what can you say about the the supposed riot in that's happened at the youth detention centre? I put that right in quote-unquote because it's kind of like a media sort of term, um, and the transfer of the 40 kids as a result who were held in this detention centre to an adult jail. Yeah, so a, a couple of observations really, and I haven't, I haven't been looking into it specifically. It's, uh, it's not sort of our area. We don't have clients in there um, currently. But uh, there's a couple of observations that I think are, are worth noting, and one is that it's being linked to um, the, scare, the scaremongering. It's being linked to Apex Gang and uh, it's being automatically um, embedded in the same law and order, tough on crime rhetoric. So the opposition are going at Andrews as being soft and uh, the kids are out of control and they, you know the governments can't control kids. Um, and all of that narrative is about the tough father you know, frame that um, they're no longer in charge of the family and and uh, the emasculated um, government and so forth. So, so, um, so Andrews has responded by being as tough as possible, and that is by um, declaring that 40 of uh, the young people are going to be put into the adult prison at Darwin, which is a, one, of, uh, one of the more maximum security prisons we have in Victoria. And that in itself is quite concerning. It shows that... Um, He's susceptible to the to the political pressure, and he shows that he, and shows that they're willing to um, jettison really basic human rights protections. Um, you know the the, uh, the principle, human rights principle, that young people shouldn't be held in custody in adult facilities or with adults is a very basic international human rights, very well articulated and um, around the world, and embedded within not only the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights, but the Human Rights Charter in Victoria. And so they're willing to jettison that for political expediency, and that's a, um, a real concern. Yeah, I've, I've um, heard a comment um, that the former Children's Commission uh, has actually spoken out against this and, and pointed out that um, most of the kids involved um, were on remand, um, or at least 75% of them were. Mm, yeah, I believe that to be the case, yeah. So, so remand means that they haven't faced court as yet and they haven't been con- con- um, convicted of any crime. They're being held in custody uh, for a range of different reasons. And, um, yeah, so the, the pressure cooker-like environment in any custodial setting um, is hasn't really been discussed. So the mainstream media has been focusing on this, you know, rhetoric around out-of-control young people and... Um, they need to be punished, whereas the analysis of what's actually going on inside youth justice centres, how poorly resourced they are, the staff, um, some staff are obviously really good within these centres, but some staff have also been, um, you know, it's been reports of goading young people into fights and um, quite horrific practices, and also just the simple, um, uh, you know, horrific nature of um, young people being held in custody in, in um for long periods of time and also in isolation for long periods of time means that um, sort of internal resistance and, and uh, writing behaviour is virtually inevitable in any sort of custodial set, set, um, setting. So, um, yeah, so there's, there's been very little mainstream commentary on um, the issue 
on, on this particular issue about how appropriate locking up young people is and what other alternatives are available. Uh, and unfortunately, rather than um, generate this sort of discussion, the, um, the current government has just taken a, an approach that in theory makes them look a bit tougher and, um, uh, and says that they're going to go to, to Barwon. Now, some of that is um, pragmatic in the sense that uh, it's, uh, they, they are going to segregate the young people into a particular area of Barwon prison. Um, they're going to be segregated from the adults, so that's the way they can justify it uh, according to the Human Rights Charter. Uh, but it's still a concerning trend. I guess um, now we're getting a bit low in time now. The last kind of question is, you know, how does, um, you know, Flemington Kensington Legal Service sort of fit into this and kind of what work are you kind of doing in response to sort of all the issues that we're kind of being discussing here with, um, you know, the um, this, you know, um, with the sort of Herald Sun kind of, you know, media scare and this sort of populism of um, the law and um, order kind of agenda? Sure, sure. So we run a specialist legal practice uh and it's a legal and advocacy practice uh, called the Police Accountability Project. So we have a statewide police complaints clinic and we have a campaign called Without Suspicion, which is about um, tackling the, the cultural and institutional um, aspects to Victoria Police that feed into racialised policing or discriminatory policing. So we're, that's a strong focus of our centre due to um, the area in which we're based, but also... That, you know, the clients that walk through our door um, continually talking about uh, discriminatory um, policing that they've experienced. And so we have a range of um, activities and campaigns and work around that. Um, we have a forum coming up on December the 8th uh, called Without Suspicion Racial Profiling Stop Search Data. It's at Melbourne Law School at uh, 5.30 and there's information on our website about that. Uh, we're also calling strongly for, uh, finally, uh, a, a system of independent investigations of police misconduct, and that's a very um, important systemic change that uh, we believe will um, shift a lot of, uh, you know, will increase accountability for um, police members engaged in human rights abuses uh, to a, quite a significant degree. Right. I guess, um, well, thanks for that, um, Anthony. Um, yeah, it was thanks. a very uh, informative interview, and I hope um, listeners here and um, enjoyed um, listening to it. All right. Okay. Have a great, much, right. Have yeah. a great day. Keep up the good work. And keep up the good work, yeah. Cheers. Cheers. All right. You are back on um, listening to Green Left Weekly Radio with Jacob and Zane. That summer wine sounds quite delicious. Yes. <laughs> we actually um, had that um, as one of our prizes um, for the Green Left Weekly Trivia Night that we held, um, Radio Trivia Night that we held um, last Saturday night. Yes. Which was quite a good. Well, s- well hosted, sir. Yeah. If, if I might say so. <laughs> um, yeah. That, that was. Um, we just held recently a fundraiser for our program um, last Saturday, which we had. We were making lots of announcements of on the over on the air. Um, I guess now going on to um, some news from um, the paper Green Left Weekly. Um, we're going to maybe I think this this um, for this next ten minutes we're going to be actually talking a bit about what's sort of happening in um, Malaysia and the Philippines. Because um, for those who did not know, um, there was a there was a big um, sort of nation, nation kind of wide protests um, happening and. 
Um, there were some being some um, great um, protests for um, big protests around Malaysia. It's sort of a national protest for clean elections. Um, this is the Bersha 5.0 demonstration. Um, there was uh, in Malaysia reporting for, um, from Green Left Weekly. Um, by Alex Brainbridge, um, the, um, the, um, the demonstration um, made a huge splash despite threats of serious um, repression. Um, the night before the demonstration, at least 10 prominent figures, including key organisers of the rally, were arrested. Um, the lead up to this rally, the Berkshire 5.0, was also characterised by threats of violence from the pro-government red shirts. Although normally independent, the government was clearly turning a blind eye to these threats. Some figures um, associated with the Najib regime were also promising to march with the red shirts. And of course, um, on the morning, Alex Bainbridge here reports, on the morning of the rally, it became clear that police were going to block the roads, preventing the mobilisations at two gathering points from converging in the centre of the city. Um, the situation was never fully overcome. However, large numbers of people eventually made their way to the city centre by various means where a spirited rally took place. Um, the numbers were down compared to previous um, Bershi um, mobilisations, with estimates um, ranging from, um, up to around 100,000 Bershi Lelo shirts compared to half a million at Bershi 4.0. Um, one reason for this would be um, the repression that took place alongside the threats of violence. Other would be the fact that the opposition has split since, since the last Bershi mobilisation with the Islamic PSA party leaving the opposition block. However, despite this, it is um, Alex Bainbridge reports here that it is um, still worth pointing out that the Berkshire crowd was significantly larger than the 6,000 red shirts estimated to have rallied on the same day. Um, guess another, some other observations was the sheer number of people who were clearly supporting Berkshire. Um, there were huge parts of the city where people were proudly supporting sporting Lelo shirts. Um, every train station even place in the general city of the main mobilisation was full of Berkshire supporters. Um, people were selling Berkshire 5 t-shirts and other um, other material, and some officially connected to the Berkshire movement, some not, at any true fair they could find. Um, these, um, the rally was scheduled to run for eight hours, and people would drop in and, in and out to eat to move different locations in the crowd, and no doubt to juggle other commitments. In this sense, it was much more like a mass movement than anything that can be readily compared to any um, recent development in Australia. Tens of thousands of people displayed their support for the movement, notably by wearing their leather shirts and headbands and by joining in the general mobilisation, which despite the threat of violence had something of the character of a festival. Um, so, yeah, that's um, Alex Bainbridge there reporting on the sort of big um, um, pro-democracy rallies that happened in Malaysia. Um, this week, um, this last weekend it um, happened. Um, but just guess one sort of thing um, in terms of international solidarity. Um, basically, a bit of news that has sort of popped up is um, the sort of chairperson of um, of the the organising of this movement, the Berkshire, um the campaign for free and fair elections in Malaysia, Maria Shi Shin. Abdullah, um, she was um, she was arrested and detained without trial on November the 18th, a day before a hundred thousand strong peaceful dem democracy march in the capital Kuala Lumpur. Um, Maria is currently being held in solitary confinement, and um, basically there's going to be a campaign. Um, sort of get a start to develop um, a campaign of international solidarity with um, the hashtag Free Maria. 
um, and um, I think people um, they're encouraging sort of people to you know to take a selfie single group and um, relay it and send it to through the Free Maria and Babas Morale campaign for hashtags. Um, also keep an eye out for any local um, protest actions organised by the lo- local Berkshire community in your city. And I think in the case of Melbourne, there was actually quite a large mobilisation of around over 300 to 500. And what's actually interesting is um, international students um, in Monash um, were actually, um, who go to Monash University, were actually emailed by um, Monash University Malaysia um, that they were advised not to attend the rally. What? Yep. Um, it's um, reported, I think there's an article, yeah, there's articles around it in Malaysia today and, and so on. So basically because they're basically warning international students who live in Australia that they should not attend a pro-democracy march of their, um, support, um, in, in Melbourne. Or, yeah, I think it was Melbourne because Monash University is only at Melbourne. So, yeah. That's scandalous. Yeah. Absolutely. Since when is the, the job of Monash Uni to do the bidding of the repressive Malaysian government? Yeah, it's, um, it's, and there's been lots of criticisms made of whether the university has any right to advise um, students, especially an institution that is apparently supposed to be politically neutral. Huh. Um, so I guess um, going on, to, we have um, Josh in the studio here um, who will be doing an interview with in about a five, probably five minutes soon, unless you want to start it earlier, Josh. Um, I'm fine, whichever way it goes for, for you. Yeah, it's just more, I think we made an announcement that the um, interview would be at 7.45, so okay. there might be, so okay. just for the sake of our listeners um, who might be just tuning in for that particular interview, we'll just hold off until 7.45 a.m. But yes, welcome. Yeah, yeah welcome. Good to have you. Um, I guess, now, going on to the next um, news story, I mentioned we're going to talk about what's happening in the Philippines, and the Philippines also had, uh, I think, uh, no, okay, uh, so, sorry, um, also had a very large mobilisation. Um, basically, what's happening in the Philippines is... Um, Philippines. Philippines. So, um, sorry for my pronunciation. I can not be great at it sometimes. Um, basically, um, what's happening in the Philipp- Philippines, Philippines um, is... Um, is Dante has, who's the current president, um, has basically um, organised a state burial of a, of a former dictator um, called um, Fernand Marcos at the Heroes Centenary, um, was hurriedly, hurriedly and secretly carried out with military-style logistical support. Um, for a bit of background, Marcos ruled the Philippines from 1965 until he was overthrown in the People's Power EDSA uprising in 1986. He died in exile in the US three years later. Um, so basically, it's sort of like, imagine if Australia had a dictator or mm. maybe the, um, a good scenario, um, situation. Um, maybe many listeners will probably know about what happened in Chile. Yeah, yeah, with, this um, guy was the Pinochet of the yeah, Philippines. The, the Pinochet. So imagine the, if the current government of Chile... Um, decided to have a hero's burial of Pinochet, someone who caused endless suffering. Yeah, yeah, locked um, up and, and tortured so, people, bumped uh, off communists. Yeah, and so, as I said before, the enabler in all this was President um, Rodrigo Dante. Um, it was Duterte, I think. Dante, right, um, who 
basically an authorised state-sponsored um, burial. Um, the state, the burial was occupied with a 21-gun salute and basically a very pompous kind of ceremony that accompanies an official burial. Um, as he writes here by Rohana, the government um, in Green Left Weekly, um, the government may have thought that given the dictator was overthrown 30 years ago, there would only be muted opposition. However, thousands, predominantly youth and university students, spontaneously walked out of their classrooms and immediately took to the streets to protest the burial, sending the president a clear message that this is a miscalculation he'll be made to regret. Um, a new generation took to the streets, demonstrating that it would be the guardians of a hit of a history that was also proudly made by the generation of the first quarter storm, the student radicalisation that was the basis for an organised mass movement that led to the overthrow of the Marcos dictatorship. Um, and so there's been sort of like a lot of, um, like, Marcos is not a hero kind of hashtags and big sort of campaign. The young protesters chanted the slogans of the martial law generation, although I can't pronounce Philippines, so it's, I think it's like Marka, Baka, Hawag, Makatog, and Marka... Um, whatever those mean. Oh, this one's quite obvious what this means. Marcos Hitler dictator tuta. <laughs> um, so those are the kind of slogans that have been kind of sort of being played up. And, you know, they're students of history, as writes here, a history that cannot be um, covered up, a product of the continuing organisation education by the martial law generation. Um, significantly, the, these young people here, you know, they're also seeing... Since history in the making, the climate of fear leading to martial law, of more oppressions and other dictatorship, a new generation has singled that it will not stand by and watch this happen. They have sent a warning to the Dante administration. They haven't now taken up the coin. Um, with the authority of the mass rallies, they declared that the, the protests will continue. They put forward some demands, chanting, dig up the body and bury it where it belongs, in the dustbin of history. <laughs> um, Protesters rallied at the People's Powered, um, People's Powered Monument, which commemorates the overthrow of Marcos, where they were addressed by speakers including leaders of the left-wing POM, which pledged to occupy the youth, youth to, in this struggle and in the coming struggles under administration that refuses to learn the lessons of history. Um, and basically, I think there was also, um, going into sort of the dynamics of the movement, um, because this is a really sort of big kind of thing happening in the Philippines, is that the PML chairperson, Sonny Mako, later cautioned those in the organised left against ethnicism. I think we should um, handle the spontaneous participation of mostly young people in the anti-Marcos Bureau rally in a very careful way, devoid of drumbeating of any group and lambasting of other groups, he said. There's a great number of non-aligned youth who participate in the protests, and we don't want them to be put off by any sectarian antic. Um, and sectarianism is poison to a newly emerging movement. Um, of course, it's one thing to disallow the tra traditional politicians, whether in office or not, in office attack centre stage, but it's the other thing to block other mass organisations from participating. Um, sort of ending the lines, let the hundred flowers bloom, let a hundred thoughts contend, let the youth be unhindered physically and mentally in their fight for truth, justice, social liberation and freedom, let the new movement emerge. And that article was in by Re, um, is in the latest, in, on the website on Green Left Weekly, um, and you can think you can get pictures of the rally in that um, article. Um, it, it's by Rohana Mohondin, who heads the international desk of the POM. Yeah, and just look, as a bit of a segue to talk with Josh too, um, I was in the Philippines in 2011, and the uh, airline workers at Palaya, uh, they were holding a picket, 
after the uh, Marcos regime was brought down, certain state enterprises were sold off to capitalists. Mm. So there's this real scumbag called Lucia Tan who who bought um, Palaya and who also has a lot of tobacco and alcohol industries and uh, they were doing basically what's happened to the cub workers where they've just sacked the entire ground crew for the airline and then offered to re-employ them as contractors on a, for a massive pay cut. And some of the activists there were saying things today still aren't that much better than under Marcos. The police there are still super repressive and will smash pickets and will smash uh, any sort of union protests and lock people up en masse. And still to this day, only about half of 1% of Filipino workers are on uh, collective agreements or in a unionised workplace. So... Mm. Uh, I guess that's just some context to giving like a, a state burial to this scumbag who ran a really brutal and, and murderous regime. Yeah, and but there's also a lot of other complicated things with Philippines politics, but we can't really get into those right now because we're going to move on to an uh, interview with... We have, um, as I said before, we have Josh um, Cullinan. Cullinan, uh, yes. Cullinan in the studio. Um, he's from... What is your position in this newly founded union? Uh, uh, on the secretary. Yep. So he's the secretary from a new union that has just been formed, um, the Retail and Fast Workers Union. Um, guess we can sort of start off, you know, tell tell us sort of the background of how this union started and um, what your what your sort of plans are. Sure, sure. So um, thanks for having me on this morning. Uh, there's been a, a a general disquiet now for the last decade. Um, many listeners will know about uh, the some of the efforts over the last thirty years to democratise um, the SDA. But over the last decade, there's been a growing disquiet amongst young workers uh, mostly, but also um, other workers, about the way the SDA does its business. Um, and that came to a head last year uh, during the Coles case. So I was uh, responsible in the first instance for working with a young uh, worker uh, in the western suburbs of Melbourne store where we were able to identify that the majority of workers in his department at Coles were going to be worse off under the new Coles agreement. Um, that was then exposed in the national media, and in the end, the Coles made undertakings to improve their agreement, um, and they weren't, they weren't small undertakings. It was 5% more to casuals and up to 10% more for 17-year-olds. So they were, they were substantial undertakings worth many millions of dollars, but they didn't deal with the core issue of uh, mostly ongoing part-time workers, the vast majority of Coles' workforce. So I was then a representative for Duncan Hart um, in Brisbane and um, his case exposed that the SDA had done a very dodgy deal with Coles to undercut the rights of workers if they had been paid under the minimum by some 70 or 80, probably more million dollars a year. And that was then the catalyst to expose all the other deals, which the SDA now freely admits is over 100 agreements that cut about a half a million workers conditions from the very minimum they'd have if there was no agreement at all. So um, out of the back of that case, um, there was a lot of media and a lot of opportunity for um, a progressive union to do the right thing, own up to its mistakes, or it's I guess they're not mistakes if they're deliberate, but own up to what they'd done and fix it. Every day, retail and fast food workers lose another million dollars um, in these dodgy deals in Australia. 
after since that decision, there's been 178 days. That's 178 million dollars ripped from the pay packets of some of the lowest paid workers in Australia. The SDA has done nothing for them. Unfortunately, uh, the ACTU has also been silent, and the Labor Party has done nothing either. So it's come to a head where a group of activists, of retail and fast food workers, and their supporters have come together and decided enough is enough. It's time for a genuine trade union to step into this space, and that's why we've launched the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. Yeah, I guess um, Nick, going, going to the next question is, what has kind of been the response from other unions um, in um, like in, to, in this sort of to the Retail and Fast Workers Union? So, unfortunately, um, this space is fraught with danger for many other organisations because of the influence the SDA has in the ALP. There's a group of unions that um, are prepared to stand up and say that um, that the exploitation has got to stop and have probably got a view that goes beyond the next year or two or a view beyond the parliamentary careers of the current um, union leaders. Um, those great progressive unions um, are slowly getting in contact with us. Obviously, we are um, in contact with the Meat Workers Union. They were the ones most affected by the Coles and Woolworths behaviour of SDA. Um, and we're very keen to continue to build a relationship with that union. Um, and the other unions that face the damage that the SDA does to the working class in their shops, in their warehouses, um, and across Australia, we'll continue to be in contact with and hopefully build stronger relationships with. I noticed that right from the outset on your website, you've been very clear in terms of demarcation, and you've said to workers who may come looking at your website to join up, here are the workplaces that we do cover, and if you're working in this area or this category, this is actually the appropriate union for you. Yeah, so, so, so we've wanted to be very clear from the start that we're not seeking a demarcation fight with anything that could be considered a trade union. Um, and so the NUW, the ASU, um, United Voice, TWU, they, they all have respected coverage um, in various shops um, or in, I guess in the sectors of retail and fast food. And we want to respect that and encourage members to participate in those unions, get involved, help make those unions great. Um, the reality is that those workers who have no other choice other than the SDA, um, until now had no choice to join a trade union because, let's be frank, the SDA isn't a trade union. So we want to be clear with all of those workers. And if they do join us, we'll be encouraging them to resign and move on to those other unions because we won't be representing those that can be effectively represented by Genuine trade unions. Yeah. Mm. So, um, within your union, is there um, there's a particular focus on the on the sort of workplaces that SCA previously covered? Like, isn't that that list includes McDonald's, Woolworths, and Coles? Is that correct? They're the th yes, they're the three largest employers in Australia, and they are the three um, most obvious and significant um, work sites that we need to get involved in. Yeah. Um, I guess um, my kind of um, question is um, sort of about the sort of politics of the union. Um, the Sydney Morning Herald article mentioned the, that RAFFU has been started by, you know, socialists um, like ourselves or Greens and ALP members, but the union wants to remain politically independent. Why do you think that's important? Well, I think there's a distinction between being political and being uh, associated directly with a political party. Obviously, all of those engaged, especially in the early stages of um, RAFU, are uh, politically engaged. We are, you know, every person is, is political as well as social. And I think that um, we are born out of an experience of SDA members 
which is which has come about through the relationship between the SDA and the ALP, and um, we're acutely aware that um, that in the in the foreseeable future, and we're talking many many years, that a political party relationship is not something that our members are going to be interested in. We we need to be able to uh, influence politicians and influence employers through the expression of worker power. We're not interested in affiliating with any political party or getting engaged in those antics. Um, our, our, our pursuits are at the workplace level. No doubt our members over time will coalesce um, at a state and a national level and they will want to develop policy and they will want to implement that policy. Um, but uh, the affiliation to a political party is not on our radar. Yeah, I guess the kind of next question I have is sort of like, um, what are sort of like the plans in terms of like evolving kind of like the, the democratic structures of the union? What kind of democratic structures are you looking to implement with this sort of new kind of union in terms of rank and file uh, membership enrolment and so on? Yeah, so there's a, there's a few different ways. The first is we haven't established a, a structure beyond the standard elected executive and committee um, from the entire membership across Australia. We haven't established a new structure that um, mobilises from shop stewards up uh, at this stage. We, we've convened a subcommittee to look at that, to explore the way various other unions work and see the best way that will work for us. We have national employers uh, where across the country we need to be able to, um, I guess, implement the decisions of our members um, in the best way possible and so we're interested in getting feedback from members and we'll go through that process for the next six months to a year and then we will establish a, a new structure. Um, well, a special general meeting of our union will, will decide on what our new structure will be. We've already established that we want uh, pr full proportional representation voting. The, the old structures of some of the old guard unions like the SDA still have um, anti-democratic rules so we, we want to be clear that we will have um, the best possible democratic structure that we can. The other element to it really is, is the way we resource it. We've been very clear from the start and everyone who's involved on the committee and um, at the shop floor at the moment um, is very clear that we want to resource organising of and by our members. So as our members get engaged, as they organise their workplaces, as they organise the workplaces of their colleagues and they get to a point where they can um, through their own resources, through their own membership fees, um, establish organising effort, we will be appointing organisers into that space from amongst them. Um, and we're, we're hopeful that that will also be another way that we can uh, build a democratic structure into our union. Right. Um, Zane, do you have a particular question you want to ask? Yeah, I'm um, just a, a big fan of the BLF Green Bands. And I don't know if you've seen that documentary, Rocking the Foundations, about the green bands and one of the um, one of the stories at the start of it is about how basically the BLF used to be like the SDA or the AWU, one of these yellow unions that's controlled by the bosses and there was a rank and file ticket and they went to union meetings and they, they tried to vote up a rank and file ticket and there was hired goons who would come along and beat them up on behalf of the union leadership um, and but that sort of raised the question of, you know, either democratising the existing union versus uh, doing what you're doing and setting up a parallel progressive union that has rank and file control and that actually advocates for workers instead of for the bosses. So I'm just, um, yeah, interested in that um, decision to take uh, path B rather than 
it sounds like there's been fairly extensive efforts to try and democratise the SDA, and like that sounds like it's a bit of a, a dead end. Yeah, so there's a few there's a few elements to that. The, the, this debate has been going on for more than a decade. Hmm. Um, I was involved in uh, getting together Coles and other workers uh, 15 years ago. Um, before being banned from uh, hosting meetings at Victorian Trades Hall and other places. Um, we were trying to look at how that might work back then. The, the, one of the problems we face with the SDA is a, is a set of, of anti-democratic rules. So they still have old communist rules, and they have rules now in Queensland where to be elected as secretary, you need to be a current serving councillor. So you need to somehow get on the council before you can somehow be elected as secretary. Um, in Victoria and other places, they have first-past-the-post winner-takes-all elections. So even if you have the support of 49% of the, of the voting membership, you still don't even get one position. Um, all 15 positions or whatever it is go to the, the winner-takes-all. They have a massive, they have massive slush funds mm-hmm. established over many, many years that have hardly been tapped and are used in other unions' elections, unfortunately. They have $110 million of their own resources to fight anyone who wants to try and stand for election on the basis they don't meet their rules. There's a whole host of reasons what, that makes that a, a very long, long, drawn-out campaign in a highly transient membership that isn't allowed to nominate unless it has two years of, of financial membership. All of those things combined um, make it extremely difficult. And the problem, and we were debating this right up until July, August this year, um, the problem right now is the urgency. It's $1 million a day. Mm. We could throw ourselves against that brick wall for the next five years, ten years, mm. trying to slowly democratise, but it's $1 million a day. And, you know, let's not forget their conservative position on a whole range of issues, which have led, let's, they have led to the marriage equality not being in place right now. Mm. It would have been without the SDA. So, um, so we've had to make a, it is a hard choice, um, but it's the right choice. Uh, we're already in the fight and we will be returning wages, stolen wages, back to workers in the next in the next few months as we start fighting these agreements that have been made. And it's not just SDA agreements. The, the bosses have taken that and, and run with it too. There are now workplaces that didn't even engage the SDA, just did the same deals, cut the same penalty rates and other rates. So, yes, uh, it's a hard choice. It's a, it was a hard decision, but uh, we've had to make one. Mm. And, um, and we're, you know, we're committed to fighting this fight for the next years ahead because that's how long it will take to build a strong union. Yeah. One kind of important question, I kind of have it while we're running a lot of time, but I think it's an important question to ask is, um, what is sort of the state of registration because you're a new union? Um, do you have any, um, what, because I don't think you can quickly start off with official union registration with full government support or anything. What is kind of the status of that with um, the retail and fast workers union? Yeah, so, so we established as an incorporated association in Victoria. Um, the next stage for us was to register as an Australian registered body. I won't bore everyone, but under the Corporations Act, effectively, there's a process to be able to trade across Australia, and that's what we've done. Um, so we're with ASIC, we're a registered Australian body. We haven't sought registration uh, with the Fair Work Commission yet as a registered organisation of employees. Again, that would be a fight funded by the SDA to the tune of millions and millions of dollars that we just don't believe we need to have right now. Um, and so whilst we don't have right of entry, we don't believe these workplaces are ever going to give uh, RAFU any m- meaningful um, entry rights. Um, and so we'll be still able to negotiate on behalf of our members, engage in industrial action um, for our members, 
Um, we'll be taking industrial activity with it, like any other union. Uh, we'll be representing our members in the commission. We'll be taking court action. We'll do, doing all of those things as well. But we're not going to not going to engage in that uh, in that process just yet. We'll continue getting wins on the board. Yep. Thanks for that. Um, I guess last question, quick question is what um, what can workers, activists, and unionists do to support um, the your new union, um, the RFFW? Uh, yes, there's a couple of great ways. The most obvious way for listeners to support is to encourage um, anyone they know working in retail and fast food to join. It's pretty easy. It's online, rafwu.org.au, rafwu.org.au. Uh, we've got an online process, uh, so it's fairly straightforward. If you don't work in the sector, we are looking for supporters, uh, both financial and volunteer. Um, so we're kicking off blitzing uh, tomorrow. Um, and uh, so anyone with a set of skills, uh, we've had lots of designers contact us to say that they can um, provide those skills, but if you've got a special set of skills, um, advocacy, if you can help in casework meetings, um, those sorts of things, we are looking for all of those skills, and we'll um, get back to you. You can, log, you can uh, do, sign up for that kind of activity as well at uh, rafwu.org.au. Um, just click through to get involved. And the final way is um, di- direct donations, and that can be either done from our website. We've also got a possible campaign that's been set up um, for the Taking Back Our Penalty Rates campaign. We were delighted. We In the first day and a half, we had um, about $17,000 donated to that. We've got a $50,000 target, so we're still still a little way away from achieving that, but we've got some time. So if you've got a, fair, uh, a spare bit of cash, um, feel free to go and check out possible.com forward slash project forward slash RAFU and, um, and check that out and uh, pick yourself up a, a reward. All right. All right, thank you very much, um, Josh. Um, it was great having you in the studio. Um, yeah, it's really exciting to see, and uh, best of luck. With yeah. the, thank you, and with thanks for having me. It's great. Yeah. yeah, best of luck. All right, um, so now we're going to, we've got another interview coming up at 8.10 a.m. with Owen Bennett from um, the Unemployed Workers' Union. Okay, you are back on Green Left Weekly Radio with Jacob and Zane um, on 8 a.m. this morning. All right, so now we're going to go on, before our last interview, we'll go on to um, the activist calendar. Um, if you're interested in picking up the latest Green Left Weekly, we will have be having a store. There's a store happening today at Flinders Street Station from 4 to 6 p.m. That happens every Friday afternoon. Um, the CUB 55, um, the CUB sort of um, action is still happening. Um, protest is happening daily from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. 6 p.m. outside the CUB gates, South Hampton Crescent and Abbotswood. And for those who haven't been there in a while, you probably noticed there's probably a lot of changes, um, a lot of developments. It's almost like its own self-sustaining community um, that's just developing and developing. Um, from Friday, um, this Friday from to Sunday, um, the Palestinian Film Festival is going to be on. Just search Palestine Film Festival Australia in Google and you can... Um, we'll be able to find links um, to all the screening times. Um, it's mostly going to be all the films are screened at the Cinema Nova in Carlton, which is a pretty notable art house theatre. Um, it's just um, a quick um, tram from the CBD. Um, this Friday, they'll be um, uh, organised by the Friends of the Earth um, Energy Clean Energy Collective. There'll be an art auction fundraiser, Arts for Earth. Um, Earth's sake, that will be happening, um, I think that's just happening sort of all day or something. It doesn't really have a time here, but it's um, go to the Arena Project space at 2 Crayer Street at Fitzroy. Um, that's, and on next... And that, that's to support that uh, the ongoing campaign to stop a giant nuclear waste dump being built in South Australia. Okay. Um, on 
Saturday, um, November the 26th, um, Ezekiel Ox, um, notable um, radical left musician, um, will be launching his EP um, at the Northcote Social Club at 301 High Street, Northcote. Doesn't don't have a particular time here, but probably just go onto Northcote Social Club website and you'll be able to find the time. Of the I imagine support acts probably on about nine, Zeke probably on about eleven ish. Yep, that'd be cool. Um, there'll be a forum on solving our job energy crisis. Um, that's what we're going to be interviewing um, our Owen Bennett about. Um, it's going to be happening this Sunday um, or, um, at, at the 2 p.m. at the um, Unitarian Peace Memorial Church, which is in 110 Gray Street, East Melbourne. Um, entry is free to Social Security recipients and, though, um, and wage workers. We encourage them to make a donation um, and uh, um, there will be, um, also happening on that Sunday will be a Song for Peace project, um, which is happening at the St. Amaral's Community Centre at 7pm 7 to 87 Sydney Road. Um, to register, please, um, email at anticonscription1916 at, oh, I don't actually have the email address here, so it's annoying. Um, but yeah, that's um, going to be basically a song for peace project for um, against the conscription. Um, in memory. And um, next Thursday, um, there'll be a rally, Spirit of Eureka at CUB, um, to commemorate the anniversary of the Eureka Stockade. Um, it will be there'll be a very special rally happening out in front of the CUB brewery. Um, as the weather heats up, the struggle for the CUB five fives enters a critical period. Join us to show that the spirit of Eureka is alive and well, beating strong in the hearts of unionists across the movement. After quick speeches, there will be flag raising and the awarding of the annual Spirit of Eureka Award. Um, that's at South Haven Crescent, Ab- Abbotsford. Um, also happening on that Thursday, there'll be a flag raising of the West Papua um, struggle. Um, they'll be at 6pm at the Shrades Hall, corner of um, Victoria and Ligon Streets, Carlton South. Um, there'll be a public meeting organised by 350. Um, what on earth are we doing? Australia's response to climate change. Um, there'll be we featuring um, a minute human rights um, um, lawyer um, Julian Burnside and uh, Act Commission for Sustain Australian Capital Territory Commissioner for Sustainability and Environment Dr Kate Arndt. Auntie, Auntie will outline our client response fees and where leadership is coming from while our federal government is missing in action on climate change. That's happening at the Town Hall right here in Fitzroy um, at 201 Napai Street and you can make bookings, probably just search public meeting, what on earth are we doing Australia's response to climate change or go onto the 350.org website. Um, those who are listening to um, the Retail and Fast Workers Union interview with Josh, um, there will be a launch of the union. Um, there will be launch, launch events in each state in 2017 for listeners who are listening from interstate. Um, the most, um, the, this will be happening um, next Friday um, at um, Rainbow Hell, 5 p.m. Rainbow Hotel, 15 David Street, um, corner of Brunswick Street in Fitzroy. Um, so, yeah, it will be a, not a good launch um, for the um, Retail and Fast Workers Union and be a good way to show your support. Um, oh, happening next Saturday, there'll be a rally. For I, think, I think that's fitting that that's at the Rainbow Hotel as well. I don't, yeah. I don't know if that's an LGBTI venue or if that's just a coincidence, the yeah. name. But, uh, 
yeah, the the SDA, as Josh mentioned, playing such a regressive role, um, you know, really throwing their weight around within the ALP and and as a uh, a, a quasi union um, to to argue against equal marriage, it's mm. disgusting. So that'll be an excellent further outcome of the of the new union. Yeah, I guess I'll just only have time for one more announcement and then I'll just go play, play a quick station ID before we move on to our interview. Um, there'll be a rally to defend and extend public housing in two weeks on Thursday, the 10th, December 8th, um, which is organised by Defend and Extend Public Housing. They'll be at 11.30am at the Parliament steps of um, Spring Street in the city. And as Anthony Kelly mentioned on that same day, December 8th, at Melbourne Law School, Flemington Kensington Legal Service, uh, also having a forum about the uh, sort of law and order campaign directed at young people at the moment in yep. Victoria. Okay, just quickly play announcement and we'll go on to our interview. Okay, um, you are back on Green Left Weekly Radio with um, Jacob and Zane. Um, we have Owen Bennett on the line, who is, um, I think you're the main... What's the position, the president of the Australians Unemployed Union, is that correct? That's right, Jacob. All right, um, so I guess maybe we can sort of start off um, to talk about, um, you know, maybe about the work to, for listeners to start off with what is the kind of work that the Unemployed Workers Union and campaigns that they've been involved in as of late? The main work we're doing at the moment is trying to help unemployed workers deal with job agencies. Um, there is no service out there at the moment that offers offers that assistance, and there has never been. Um, the government expects you know, about 880,000 unemployed workers to deal with these private companies who are being contracted out to run um, employment services without any assistance, even though you know, there's, there's a clear conflict of interest there where these, these privately owned job agencies, job agencies exist to make money, and You've got unemployed workers on the other end who are, who are trying to um, get a leg up in life. And so there's, there's just this conflict that goes on at job agencies across Australia where unemployed workers don't really know what their rights are because the system is quite complicated and job agencies take advantage of that by pushing them into outcomes that actually benefit them financially but don't really benefit the unemployed workers. So that's our main um I mean, function at the moment, you could say, and we have a hotline that um, we encourage unemployed workers to call for free and we, we give them advice on um, on on their rights at, at, at these job agencies. Can, can you give an example of what, uh, what sort of things uh, unemployed people would be pushed into by these agencies? Sure. Well, when um, this, this new contract came in, this job agency contract because it, it it changes every every so often every sort of three or four years. Or this this current contract that the um, the Abbott government introduced in 2015 is going to go for five years, or it's a really quite a big contract. It's going to go until 2020. Um, but yeah, under this contract, um, they expanded work for the doll quite a lot, and work for the doll became the centerpiece of the program in in many ways. Um, you have to do it for six months of the year. Um, every year, although just recently that that's actually been um, it's been changed uh, to you, you do it after one year of um, of unemployment. I think the government is sort of 
realising how um, how much of a disaster Work for the Dole was and how much these job agencies were just bullying people into it. So I'll give you an example. Um, we, we get a lot of calls from people who aren't eligible for Work for the Dole for a number of different reasons. Um, quite a, a common one is that they're, they're, they are um, already in paid work, which means they're ineligible for work for the Dole because they're receiving a reduced rate of new start due to the the, um, the income that they're, they're reporting. Hmm. And these job agencies just, just make it up on the spot and say, no, you have to work for the Dole because that gets them an outcome and um, it looks better for them on paper when the next contract comes around. But that's all the job agency is really concerned with is, that they're, is their end of the bargain and they really don't care about the unemployed worker and forcing them into all kinds of um, cruel and unusual activities. And another really common one is people are being forced to attend more than the, the more appointments than they should be attending. So under the, the Job Active Deed, which is what we've combed through and we've produced a lot of material on that, you know, unemployed workers' rights booklets online, you know, got a lot of material that we've taken from the contractors. Um, these these job agencies just haven't seemed to have read, um, or and because the government doesn't really police the industry, they can just get away with um, with pushing people into all sorts of unfair activities. But um, yeah, another really common one is um, unemployed workers being forced to attend say three, four, sometimes even five um, appointments per per week, and you're only meant to um, attend one appointment per month, but these job agencies just want to push people into attending lots of activities, keep them very busy, um, really unnecessarily, just going in there and just doing nothing effectively, what's called job club, which is basically going on the internet, which they could, which um, a lot of people could do at home or do in their own time. But the, the, the whole name of the game here is just to make the experience of unemployment so unpleasant, so... Quite horrible and um, degrading, because it pushes people out into the labour market um, really forcefully, and says you have to accept anything that comes along because this experience of unemployment is is so terrible and so um, humiliating, and and that that benefits business in the long run because wages and conditions um, puts quite a strong downward pressure on wages and conditions. So that's that's really the game here. It's a big stick to beat unemployed workers over the head with to benefit business. Mm. Um, I guess maybe going on is um, what can you tell us about um, the forum um, that you have organised this coming sun, um, Sunday as a way of promoting it, um, solving our job agency crisis? Yes, um, that's right. Well, this, this issue is just hasn't been given any any um, publicity, any attention really, despite it being you know in such such a um, it's such a dysfunctional and punitive system where it's as I said before, putting 880,000 unemployed workers through the ringer a lot of the time. And we're, we're releasing um, at this event on Sunday um, at the Unitarian Church at 2 p.m., we're releasing our yearly report at our hotline, which um, really exposes just the dysfunction that's going on in the system and, and the punitive nature of the system. You know, We've, we've found that you know, through the calls we've come through, more than half of the calls we've had have involved some sort of bullying, um, whether it be pushing people into those activities, like I mentioned, into work for the doll, not recognising their medical conditions, um, you know, unfairly penalised. But the penalties that, that's going on in the system now is just completely um, outrageous. It's, 
it's um it's horrific really when you when you think about it um all these vulnerable unemployed workers are being penalized by job agencies for for effectively nothing um I'll just give you a, a brief um rundown of what's been going on so in 2013 this was um under the previous system in that financial year there was about about 700,000 or I'd say about a, a million yeah around about a million penalties were imposed um on unemployed workers which is a lot yeah. um but now um in 2015-16 there's there's been 2 million penalties has been imposed so it's it's just been a complete uh, explosion of penalties mm. um, you know and if if you take that to 2010 2010 there was about 300,000 or so penalties in the financial year so it's just completely gone out of control and that's all down to this contract that was built from the ground up by by the Abbott government which really puts a financial incentive on these job agencies to to punish people because that gets them the outcomes they need. So there's all these unemployed workers who are just being going through this cycle of penalties, 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 and these job agencies aren't doing what they're meant to be doing in administering these penalties. They're not administering them fairly. They're not giving unemployed workers a chance to inform them that they they might have had a reasonable excuse, for for, for example. There are so many red flags throughout this whole industry. It's just a complete punitive mess, and it needs to really be shut down and needs to be investigated because the the strain it's putting on the poorest people in our society is um, is shocking. Mm. I guess um, you know what, what's interesting about um, that is you know the, you know the Australian unemployed union is probably not even um, that kind of like you know not not every single unemployed person probably knows it's probably only a minority of unemployed people sure. know about and the fact that the fact that you're receiving all these sort of calls and stories tells me that that's it's even a bigger issue than what you hear from the anecdotally from the, the calls that you're receiving. Yeah, it's quite scary that, and I think that. Well, that's what we're trying to encourage. We're trying to encourage the government to, to sort of take an interest in this abuse that's going on, the rampant abuse that's been carried out in the government's name. I mean, the, the government spends $3 billion per year on on these services. That's that's the disability employment services, which are which is a complete... Um, that, that's probably the, the most uh, egregious forms of abuse go on there because these are people with, with significant... Disabilities, who are just being, um, you know, and let me say just before I carry on that, that there are some job agencies that you know are, are better than others, but the whole system is geared towards this this sort of punitive attitude, and it, I, I think there are a lot of job agencies out there who really hate this contract. You know, they, they really they don't like being put in this position, and you know. We, we we have sympathies towards some of them because it's just the government has set them up to fail with this contract, and they've got you know it doesn't excuse what they do, but it's really put them in this unenvious position where they, um, in order to make money, which is you know that, that's the name of the game um, in this industry, they they have to you know or they they're sort of put in a, a difficult position and. That the government has created that system um, because it wanted to punish unemployed workers. That's really what it comes down to. And 
because of all these myths existing about unemployed workers being dull bludgers or somehow being responsible for their poverty, it just hasn't been getting any interest um, in the media. And when, when you look at the broader picture, which is something that we always come back to, which is just the complete lack of jobs. I mean, they're going by the ABS statistics. There's 19 job seekers competing for every job vacancy. So oh, yeah. the government, instead of using that $3 billion per year to actually create jobs, hmm. which would, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't create the jobs that we need, but would certainly go away to creating some jobs, they're unemployed workers. They've just erected this sort of massive, uh, Corporate Punitive bureaucracy, machine. yeah. Yeah, this bureaucracy. And it's, it's so big, like, you have no idea, like, having to get 880,000 people in, you know, every week, every month, or having an appointment to work for the Dole system, it's just, it's just behemoth. And, um, I don't know why, or I, I do know why, but I don't, I, I, I just don't know, you know, why, um, ordinary workers are standing for this sort of treatment of their, of their unemployed brothers and sisters. It's, it's quite, um, Horrific. Yeah, it's. I, I think me. it's because it's it's because they don't know about it, of course, which is which is all part of why we're doing this conference. We're trying to lift the lid on this punitive industry. Hmm. It, it strikes me that there's. You, you've mentioned that these agencies are, are dealing with a massive number of people, eight hundred eighty thousand people. It strikes me that there's a lot of chaos in administering all of those cases and lining up all of those meetings, and. There seems to be uh, these employment agencies can make as many mistakes as they want, but if you're unemployed, there's zero tolerance to make any mistake. Mm. And if you do, that's mm. when you get these uh, breaches and fines. And Yeah, that's, I think yeah, you really hit the nail on the head there. There's no consequences for job agencies when they do anything wrong. In fact, you know, from what I've seen, it's, it's kind of like the government's encouraging it because on, you know, the system as it is now is, is, a, is, is very, um, you know, it encourages this sort of punitive behaviour in many instances. Like there's lots of penalties. Like you can get a you can get a, a deduction from your new start for not showing up to your job agency appointment, and that's a sixty dollar deduction every day. And you can get also the same deduction for what's called inappropriate behaviour as you work for the dole activity, which is completely, you know, it's not defined at all. So there's all these laws that exist, you know, that empower job agencies to, to fine you. Um, but the government actually want to increase that. That they've been pushing hard recently for to give more powers to job agencies for all these on new type of penalties where they can fine you. In all sorts of different scenarios, so it's it's like you know that sort of a tacit uh, approval of what's going on. It's saying that yeah, we know that you guys should be you know have more penalties. Um, so we're, we're proposing this, but you know, I think that that's kind of it's sending a quite a clear message to the to the industry that this sort of a you know intimidation and these these. The, the, the fear that they, the fear tactics that they use is um, is encouraged really, and I think the government really has to uh, be made aware of the effects that that this is having on on you know Australia's most vulnerable citizens, mm. and that's the sort of thing the unemployed workers union are going to be working towards. Okay, I guess um, we can sort of end um, around here. I guess uh, sort of any kind of 
um, final comments, um, Owen, that you would like to make on air? Um, well, I, I suppose just uh, about this event on on Sunday at 2pm, we've got some, some really great speakers going to be coming. Um, Sue Bolton, um, you, your listeners would um, have a lot of affection for, I imagine. Uh, Duncan Storer, who um, was on the, you know, that, that it was the guy on Q&A, probably better known as, yes. um, who, who, who spoke out against uh, the politician. And attracted and, the ire of the Herald Scum and the Daily Telegraph for doing that's so. That's right. And, yeah, and I think all, all that is, that, that, that bashing in the media, you know, it, it's, it's so, uh, it's, it's part of this whole punitive a, um, apparatus, really, and it, it encourages unemployed workers not to fight back. But that's what we need to change. We need to change that culture. We need to say that, you know, yes, it's the government that is to blame for this, and we need to hold them responsible, whereas the government, of course, try to shift blame onto unemployed workers, even though, you know, successive governments have failed to create enough work and have instead created this huge punitive bureaucracy and apparatus to to, to sort of punish them for, for you know, for not being able to existing. get a job, which is, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the government's own fault. And there's, there's some other great speakers as well, um, Godfrey Mose from the National Union of Workers and um, Paz Forgione from um, the Anti-Poverty Network from South Australia. And we've also got some great unemployed workers speaking as well. For We're going to have an hour testimony section at the start just to get an idea of what's happening because I think if if Australians knew what was going on and what... You know, unemployed workers are being put through at their job agencies. Their whole attitude would shift, and I think they would they would come on side and they would join us in in just demanding. You know, very very um, small demand is just unemployed workers are treated with respect mm. and given some dignity in their lives. That's all we're asking for. And currently, the, the government is um, is not allowing that. Mm. All right. Oh, um, thank you very much for that, Owen, and um, I will hopefully actually be attending your forum on Sunday unless something comes up. Um, but, yeah, uh, thank you for great. being on our program. Right. Yeah, keep up the good work. And keep up the great work. Staunch. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye. And that is Owen Bennett from the Unemployed... Workers Union, the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. All right. Um, we're getting really close um, to the, well, we're pretty much at the end of the show. Um, so yes. I guess I'll have to thank listeners um, for, um, and thank all the interviews that we, thank all the people we interviewed for being on our program. And um, thank you listeners for listening to another um, hour. I'll just quickly play the outro of Green Left um, Radio. Yes.